0: take a look at this question of a disciple. Uh, You know, as we gather together Sunday morning, the question is, is this for people that don't know Christ or is this for the believer? And that's always a debate that goes on in the church. I personally think the most attractive thing to a person of the world is a man or woman in love with Christ. They may not understand it, but they're really attracted to it. Have you noticed you're attracted to things you shouldn't be? That's why uh, Caltrans and LAPD had to put up so many signs. They said, don't come near the bridge. What does everybody want to do? Go to the bridge. Have you ever noticed when you're driving, all the looky-loos, when there's an accident on the other side, the stop, what attracts you? And everybody's attracted to a baby. I like, uh, Carol and I have been doing some babysitting for our third grandkid who's a two uh, months old, and I noticed we got this reflex every time we have uh, her alone that we tell people, grandchild, not our own. I don't know why I do that all the time, but I guess it's because here in L.A., things are different. But as uh, <laughs> you're attracted, I think of the... Uh, I grew up in eastern Colorado, and I was told of the doctor that used to make you know home obviously calls and this woman was going into labor and he went there and there was a horrible storm and she was about ready to deliver and so he told the husband well go get one of those uh coleman lamps and just hold it here we're going to do- deliver this baby right here and so so he's standing back and the doctor said come here closer 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 and so he he, delivered, he says, congratulations a little boy and the father's going go on and he goes wait 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 get that lamp over here just a minute and he looked and he said there's another baby, and they probably said, a little girl. And the father's like, wow. And he said, wait, wait, wait. And the guy took the lamp and threw it against the wall. And he said, what would you do that for? He says, I think the light's attracting them. <laughs> yes, we have six more bad jokes before I'm gone. But as we take a look at this question, what attracts us to the things in life? Any guide, any of you that have done whitewater rafting will know. Any guide who is worth their salt, whoever she or he is in white water, will get up and look out at that river before they get in. They may have gone down that thing a thousand times. But what they're doing is something called reading the river. Because that same river, the rocks haven't moved or anything, but if there is different volume of water, and even something as subtle as temperature, what was a fun spot yesterday could be a fatal washing machine where you get caught in it. And so any good guide reads the river to know how to take it. And another thing they'll try to get through your mind, and mine as well as a tourist coming along, is we get into choppy water, you dig that oar deep. The more you are in the hard water, the more you put your oar in deep, you control the boat, the river doesn't. The worst thing to do is to pull back in white water and not engage the river. And the worst thing for you and I to do in the incredibly fast-moving world we live in and talk about whitewater rapids is to pull back rather than putting our oar deep and digging in. And the best way to engage, believe it or not, is what you're doing right now, worship. Worship corporately, we'll look at next week, and worship privately this way. And why it is so important, and as Paul urges Timothy... And we're going to see even more. Keep reading scripture. Keep in prayer. Keep in worship. Why? Two reasons. We become what we worship. We absolutely do. And we behave like we worship. We become what we worship. You have ideals and I do too. And then we have the real values. And worship sifts those out and makes ideals become values in your life and mine. And second of all, we behave like we worship. Your interaction with people today, in your family and your friends, or in the classroom or in the office, is a mirror of your relationship with God. The vertical and the horizontal are bound together. And the more we can get our relationship with the Lord on track, the more our relationships with the people we live with get on track. Robert Frost said a great thing. He said, Love is an irresistible desire to be irresistibly desired. Love is this irresistible desire to want to have somebody else want us. If God is love, it's not that God has love, God is love. Love is not God, there's a difference. If God is love, he has this irresistible longing for you to want him the way he wants you and me. And this is what Paul is trying to get into Timothy's head and heart. Let's turn back and take a look at this a little closer. Turn over to the fourth chapter, page 964 in your pew Bible. Thinking of uh, worship, I think of the little boy who was... He said his, to his mommy after going to church, and i tell you, you know, a lot of a uh, Catholic, Lutheran, even a lot of Presbyterians used to be, you had that child in here in worship, not in Sunday school, so they would learn how to do both. But he said to his mom, mom, what's the largest number you've ever counted to? She said, I don't know. You mean like one after the other? Maybe 300? He goes, I counted to 2,332. She goes, wow. Well, why'd you stop then? He said, because the worship service was over. <laughs> But here in the fourth chapter, in verse one, (laughs) now the Spirit expressly says that in the last times, pause, the last days is sequential, not chronological. We are in the last days. The last days means the next thing God gave all the prophecies through Abraham, to have a family, to make a nation into exile, or uh, out of the exodus, back to the country of Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, sifted them down into exile, back to prophecies, the birth of Jesus from the virgin by the name of Mary, his life, his teaching, his crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, the giving of the Holy Spirit. There's one last thing he has to do, and that's the return of Christ. So we are in the last days. Now, I think that there will be a period of time, whether the seven years of Revelation or what, will be compacted. One generation is going to get the final gun lamp. And if you and I are approaching those days, and I think so, I've been wrong two other times, but I think that we are getting very, very close to that. And what's so important, the way that we go through this choppy of water, the worst time the world has ever seen, we're not there yet. You think things are bad. They're not even close to bad yet. And when they get to their worst, when if it wasn't for God's return in Christ, the world would perish. That at that time, he pours out his spirit on the church like he never has before. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will renounce the faith by paying attention to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared with a hot iron. They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected, provided it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by God's word and by prayer. Now, he's saying this extreme asceticism that is going on. There are some that are saying, God, doesn't, God wants you to not enjoy good food, good drink, enjoy the beauty of life. God wants you to be ascetic. He's always fighting that but he's also fighting the hedonists that say that life is nothing more than pleasure. As C.S. Lewis said Satan sends error in pairs so you pick one over the other rather than staying on the truth. Is it better to be an extreme legalist or is it better to be a drunk? Well, it's better to be a legalist. Wrong answer. It's better to be in between and to say that All good things are given by God to be enjoyed. Provided it is the Lord that is leading in that way. This is where worship, because he's going to go into this worship thing is coming out, because we become what we worship. Look at what he says in 6. If you put these instructions before the brothers and sisters, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished on the words of the faith and the sound teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with profane myths and old wives tales. Train yourself in godliness, for while physical training is of some value, godliness is valuable in every way, holding promise both this present life and the life to come. And as you look at this rhythm of our lives, the question is, do we train ourselves spiritually? And there's a difference between an ideal and a value. An ideal is where you say, I should be in shape. A value is where you actually eat healthy things and work out. An ideal is I should economically get my house together. A value is where you take the self-sacrifice to get it together. I have an ideal that I want to be in shape. And people tell me that eating vegetables are really good for you. And I think that every time I walk past a salad bar, I think about that. And as I told you before, if you could deep fry a salad, I'd eat a lot more of them. But it's... A value, if you value it, you're going to do that. It's an ideal to say, I should love the Lord. A value is what you are doing. The very first thing that God sanctified after he made everything was what? Time. Not a place, not an action. On the seventh day, God hallowed it and made it holy. The Shabbat, hallowed holy day. You can't be holy with the pace of life that the average American lives. It's flat out impossible. You can learn a lot of things. You can be down on yourself and beating yourself up for not being that way. But if you don't get a rhythm to your life, take a look over. Turn with me over to Mark, the first chapter. The very first thing, and of course, Mark, not only does he have a great name, but Mark, the first chapter, (laughs) page 812 in your pew Bible there. In the 35th verse, 813. Now, as you know, uh, Luke has the whole story of the great birth narrative. Matthew has the genealogy. John has the prologue in the beginning. Mark just bang right out of the block says, the beginning of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he la- blasts in. It's kind of the gospel of action, which we studied some years ago. Bang, bang, bang. But look at what he pauses in the very first chapter. And John Mark who was probably the first to reduce the gospel to writing. Look what he puts here in the 35th verse. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. This is great, and they rebuke him. And when they found him, they said to him, Everyone's looking for you. He answered, Let us go on to the neighboring town, so I may proclaim the message there also, for this is what I came out to do. And he went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. Right away, the first thing Jesus does, he has to get up so early to go out to be with the Father. Why? Because Jesus said, I only do, not what I think is right, I only do whatever I see and hear the Father doing. And he said, if I don't hear the Father, I don't know what to do. Jesus didn't land with a map that said, you know, on Tuesday you've got to heal this widow, and on, on Wednesday you're going to be walking on the water, and on Thursday you're going to be dividing some loaf. He had no idea, because when he emptied himself to kenosis, but he was 100% dependent on the Father. And the only way he could do is to have the time to do that. And it's the rhythm of our lives, and I don't think you need to be a legalist about this, but you have to be really intense about it. That if you don't set aside time, if it's early in the morning before the day or if you're more awake at night before you go to bed, maybe it's on your lunch hour, to sit down with a cup of coffee or some hot tea and some scripture and to say, Lord, speak to me, you can't be a disciple. It's impossible. Any more than you can play for the NFL and think you don't need to work out. It's just not going to happen. Or to think any more that you can play with one of the bands like up here and not practice. It's not going to happen. And so as we, and it, because God doesn't get down on us and have us do that, it requires accountability. That's why these small groups and why we have so many different ways to be able to help us to be able to say, hey, how are you doing in your growth in that way? Carolyn and I, uh, we, uh, people often ask, when do we pray? And normally, I uh, believe it or not, it's uh, after we get done working out, I love to go walking with her, whether it's down at a walking down here on Balboa Park, walking around, or over on the west side walking there. And usually, I find I used to love to be able to run before my knees gave out, and so now I put on uh, some different gospel tracks while I'm working out 24-hour witness with the best gangster rap. It's really a moving time uh, to do that. But we just find we kind of walk and we picture our family, we picture you and pray for you, and like Christ was walking us with Emmaus. Wherever you can find is the best place to be able to do that. Setting aside that, cor- that time of private worship. And this is what he is saying to him. What do we as Americans worship? We certainly worship fame. Can you believe what people will do to be noticed? I mean, it's unbelievable. How about that woman that just lied about winning the lotto a few months ago? She n- never bought a ticket, but she said that she'd won it. Why? When they finally got on her, it was so that when people interviewed her, she'd be recognized. If we worship fame, we become nothing more than attention seekers. That's how we're made. What about money? We just become a money machine. My goodness, what people will sacrifice on the altar for money? Pleasure? Long ago, uh, when I was doing my undergrad in psych, before uh, PETA came around, we used to be able to do experiments on rats, and I remember that We used to put a little electrode in the hypothalamus of a rat. It's a pleasure center. And so when he hits this plate, it feels good. You know what that rat will do? He will beat that lever till he passes out. And then when he gets up, you know what he does? Starts hitting it again. (laughs) How many people just live for the pleasure of now, of the moment, and we, like the little rats, beat that lever until we pass out? That's why Celebrate Recovery and other things can help us to be able to step out and reach out there. How many of us worship power? Oh my goodness. That somehow that we have to have the power over others and over our own lives. But when we worship Christ, we become as Christ. And the interesting thing in that, when you lose control, when you lose your life, you gain it. When you lose you being the source of everything, God not only says, I throw all this in, but you gain him as well. And that's what he's saying. Turn back over to First Timothy, and we'll finish this up in verse 11. So he's reminding them what they're doing and how different this is than what they were at. And so he tells Timothy in verse 11, These are the things you must insist on and teach. Let no one despise your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Until I arrive, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhorting, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which is given to you through prophecy with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. Put these things into practice is the Greek practice, action. Devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress. Pay close attention to yourself and to your own teaching. Continue in these things, for in doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. We become... What we worship, who we worship. And we forget who we are when we don't. 1969, a gentleman by the name of Henry was having about 12 to 15 grand mal seizures every other hour. This is long before all the brain mapping and the surgery of today. And poor Henry was having this. He was going to die. And William Penfield a neurosurgeon in Toronto, attempted something that had never been attempted before. He split the corpus callosum, which they do quite a bit now today, to stop this grand mal seizure. But when he did that, he unknowingly cut all of Henry's long-term memory and a lot of his short-term memory. And every time he met Dr. Penfield, every morning, it's like he, Henry had met him for the very first time. Horribly, one memory he did retain was his great love for his uncle who had died three years earlier. And he always asked about his uncle every day and grieved like he had heard for the first time. Every day. And Dr. Penfield said, Henry is a slave of the moment. He's a slave of the moment. You and I live in a culture that are enslaved to the moment. We forget who we are. And Paul is telling Timothy, don't forget who you are. You're not an evolutionary bag of neurochemicals with no purpose floating in the space out there. That's just a result of your environment. You are a son, a daughter of the living God. And God went to great pain and great effort to save you and to perfect you and your future is glorious. This isn't just a self talk, self-pump up, sunshine to yourself. This is hardcore reality. And when you come in here and you realize not just the things that you've done wrong and I've done wrong, but we realize how much God loves us. And the incredible, he's done this thing. He's won already. And that we are going along and participating with him in salvation. Life gets a whole new meaning. And that's what worship's about. Just like last week when we were looking at Scripture, you have to be able to piece it together and know it. And if you don't, the less Scripture you know, the less the Holy Spirit can lead you. It's like you give Him a small hard drive or you give Him a big hard drive for Him to be able to whisper to you. But it's in those times, even no matter what you feel, to sit down and say, Lord, I don't think you're listening. No one's around. But Lord, I'm going to praise you and thank you. I'm going to pray for others. That all of a sudden something takes place in a deep place. And so he reminds him in that sense, pay close attention to yourself and to your own teaching. Continuing these things for in doing this, you'll save both yourself and the hearers. I challenged uh, someone by the name of Scott one time to try doing a personal quiet time on his own. And again, I, I think if you're new in the faith, you need to be pretty... Almost legalistic and setting time aside. But then after a while, I think you, I so miss the times when I'm not with the Lord alone on my own that I find myself, It's even though it's hard to carve out those times, it's not as hard as it was earlier on. But he was a, a businessman and he smoked three packs a day. He's uh working for the bank and... This was early on in my ministry, and I said, tell you what, Scott, and he said, I just can't give this stuff up, you know. And You know how bad smokers, when they have one in the other hand and they forget that. That's one of these guys, he would do this. And we said, well, you know, I'll get some help. But I said, let me try something else. Why don't you add with that, not only getting some medical help and try to get off this, but why don't you start a quiet time? And he's like, why don't you start a quiet time? And he go, just try it. And so... He did, and one day, this crazy boss that he couldn't deal with, he's not for sure he's going to get fired, and the guy got on the old days of the intercom, said, I want you to come in here. And he said, he took a last drag of his cigarette, and he put it down, and he said, God, you take care of the smoking, I'm going to go take care of this idiot. It's the last cigarette he ever had. Now, I'm not saying when you have a quiet time, you lose weight, your teeth sparkle, and you never have to rotate your tires. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying all of a sudden the parking spaces magically open up. I am saying when you get to a place where you know how to give things to God, that he does take the things that we've been carrying around too much. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are tired and heavy laden. If you're feeling a burden and you're connected to Christ, Guess what you're not supposed to be carrying? The burden. And again, I'm not making light of the sorrow and the pain and the hardship that we have, not at all. But there comes a place where we have to learn to let him take the weight from us. We not only become what we worship, we behave like we worship. And he's saying Timothy, and for any of you in here that are, you think you're too young, Timothy remembers probably in his mid twenties. Paul's probably fifty eight, about my age, we're estimating that. He's writing to him. And the next Timothy we'll see in five years later when he's on death row, he'll remind him of these things. He's saying, Timothy, don't let anybody tell you you're too young. Don't let anybody tell you you're too old either. And don't let anybody tell you you're not gifted or qualified. Don't you do that. The Lord says, I will use whom I will use. Yes. And you get to a place of say, Lord, I want to be used. God says, great. And it's in those moments that he really comes and takes us his place. But we have to know how to, what he's really saying is learning how to follow him. You know, heading, uh, back to Colorado, just because I can't take the viciousness of these winters here, uh, that I gotta get ready for winter time again. And I, I, recall a woman who was telling me that one of those white-out snows, you know, where you really can't see the end of your hood of your car, and she was driving home, and she thought, I'm, I'm going to have a wreck. I'll never make it. And, and this is before the days of cell phone. And thank the Lord that a snowplow came up by her, and she said, I'm going to follow that snowplow. So she got in behind him, and he's making all these different turns and thinking he's probably going through the neighborhoods, clearing off the roads, but he knew he's in the right direction. After about 20 minutes, it stopped. And all of a sudden, he got out of the cab and came and knocked on her window and said, Hey, lady, it's going to take me about another half hour to clear off this parking lot. But I, you want to stay with me, you can do that. She was just following him around some safe way, going around while he was clearing it off. And how many of us, we get so close? It's such a wideout, if you will, out there. We're following the world, and it doesn't know where it's going. And it's when we step back and go, Whoa, okay, now I see what life's about. Yeah, love is good, and to have a boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife, but it's not salvation. Yeah, to make money is good. I I like money. If you don't like money, give me your money. I like money. Yeah, it's good to be successful and have joy and to have even health, but you know what? It's not God. God is God. And when I can realize and find in this... Francis said as we sang his song, until God is all you have, you'll never know that God is all you need. Until we get to that place and someday we're all going to let go of this world. And we're all going to stand there and we're going to say aloha oi to this journey. And at that moment, I think that we will, those of us that have been walking with the Lord, even though death is such a weird reality. And none of us thinks it will happen for us. I tell you, my favorite line is Woody Allen. He says he doesn't mind dying. He just doesn't want to be there when it happens. You know, that, that, that sense of what is this about? But I think when we stand before the Lord, so many of us are going to do the Brewer salute and say, what was I doing? And God will say, enter into the joy of the Lord. Come on in. I think we'll say, what was I worried about? And he'll say, yeah, I was trying to ask you that. But you never did return my calls. Never did have that time to sit down and where I could tell you how dear you are to me. How powerful I am. The new things that I was going to create with you. But come on in anyway. And my job as your pastor is to make sure when we stand there before that day, that that doesn't take place. It's up to you to be able to put your own ore into the water. And to get your own act together. But it's my job. And the best way to do that is to have you do the ministry. As we always said, our job is to lay down the track here for you to care for others. And for you to pour your life into others. God doesn't show himself to those who want to know him. God shows himself to those who seek him. There's a big difference. And when we seek the Lord, as you are doing right now and even watching online, God is right there with us. And as we come together and sitting with that cup of coffee and not just show me what to do and how to bless me, it's also a time of saying thanks. This next week is the first week of uh, October. Can you believe that already? And I think that a lunch will take place between uh, two co-workers, Jermaine Washington, African-American, and Michelle Stevens, Anglo girl. And while they'll have lunch, she will take him out to lunch to say how much she appreciates him. When he was 26 and she was 23, they were working together in the same office. I think it was for a FedEx or something. And she was going into renal failure. And Jermaine Washington, no relative of her, no way, didn't go to school or anything together, just a co-worker, but a Christian... Said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you one of my kidneys. And he did. And so she takes him out for lunch every year to say thank you for a kidney. <laughs> you think, well, God, wouldn't he at least do dinner? <laughs> but what she's saying is, I'll never forget this. When we come here, it's to say thank you for God not giving us one of his kidneys but for giving us his very son in exchange for us. You become what you worship. Watch your worship life. And you behave to others the way you behave with him. Let's pray, shall we? God, we do praise you and thank you that you have loved us, this irresistible desire, this irresistible love pursuing us chasing us down even when we run away from you and shake our fist at you, even when we fall because, God, we just can't quit this crazy disease called sin, even when we're so angry with you because life didn't go the way we want that you never let us go, and you just pick us up in those big strong arms and you put us on your lap and you hug us as our Heavenly Father and whisper to us, it is all right. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So, Lord, I pray for us that, Lord, we would learn the beautiful, glorious thing of worship. Worshiping you not just when we set aside and worshiping you when we come here, but worship you, Lord, as we're driving, to love you and to share all of life when we're at work or in the classroom, when we're standing in Trader Joe's, God, when we're standing in line at Wells Fargo, to be able to whisper up prayers and gratitude and to simply share life with you. Thank you, Lord. And as we come to you now, part of worship is saying that we love you more than the shekels that you have loaned to us for this journey. As we give to you with our tithes and our offerings, I pray, Lord, that you would bless the gift and the giver alike. For those, Lord, that can only give a little that are just so broke, God, give them faith and meet their need. For those, Lord, that can give to you from, give them the spirit of generosity, those that need food and clothes and medicine that are so less blessed than we are, God, take it and multiply it. And may Jesus get all the attention. It's for his sake and his name we pray. Amen.